You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it. And it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now, back to our program. Well, you know, um, God, either you have really, you know, you have really, you know, crossed over into, through the doorway of adulthood now, uh, by becoming a bat mitzvah. And that's what I wanted to share with you. I wanted to share the, uh, from your Torah portion, just a quick word. I'm not going to make you sit forever, but you have already proven yourself by enduring through a lot of classwork and study and even getting up enough nerve to stand in front of this whole crowd and read from the Torah. So from your Torah portion, which is Masay, uh, I want to share this message, Crossing Over. I believe that it's pertinent to you because today you have crossed over from childhood and are becoming an adult, a young lady. I know, you may not feel like it yet, but it's coming. And by the way, I use these two Magan David, these two stars of David, um, just because we had the word, no, never mind, it's crossing over. Your portion says, you shall take possession and live in it. So God, you're crossing over to something which I'm calling adulthood, and you're becoming a young lady, over the next number of years, and the Lord has something for you, and he says, you shall take possession of it, and you shall live in it, what the Lord has for you. It's from your Torah portion, Masay, which is from Numbers chapter 33, and I'm going to particularly look at verses 50 through 55, which you read this morning. Well, I guess I just couldn't pass up the opportunity to share a story. It's called Always Jewish Jokes. While waiting to catch the train to work, one day Moshe began to tell his buddy a joke. Mendelbaum and Rosenstern were taking, were talking one day. Right away his friend interrupts him. Always with the Jewish jokes. Give it a rest, Moshe. Why do they always have to be about Jews? Would you just change the names to another ethnic group for once? Okay, okay. So Moshe starts again. Hashimoto and Suzuki were talking one day at their niece's bat mitzvah. You can take the name out of the Jew, but you can't stop them from going to a bat mitzvah. <laughs> you know, this this occasion for the Cruz family is the second time that they have celebrated a bat mitzvah in their home and in their family, and it really marks for them a return from... Um, from a life in the diaspora where their Jewish identity had been lost 
through some generations and their return now to their Jewish identity in Yeshua as Jews. Well, Mazel Tov, Gadi. Uh, this is your first and I hope not your last Aliyah to the Torah. So now you have crossed over into becoming an adult. And I don't say you've become an adult. I use it in the tense of becoming, which is what you are. You are becoming an adult. And some of us who are older are still becoming an adult. But today, it's it's marked because this is a transition period in your life. And today you you stood before the Lord and you stood before your friends and and before the congregation. And in a sense, you have declared that you are taking responsibility before God and before your friends and your family for your actions and your attitudes. And so today is a very special day for you and for your family. Let's read these few verses from your Torah portion from the complete Jewish Bible. Numbers chapter 33, verses 50 through 55. Adonai spoke to Moshe in the plains of Moab by the Yarden, by the Jordan. Across from Jericho, he said to tell the people of Israel, when you cross the Yarden into the land of Canaan, or Canaan, you are to expel all the people living in the land from in front of you. Destroy all their stone figures, destroy all their metal statues, and demolish all their high places. And you explain that God really was bringing in this whole idea of monotheism, which is very true. Further it reads, Drive out the inhabitants of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess. You will inherit the land by lot, according to your families. You are to give more land to the larger families, less land to the smaller ones. Wherever the lot falls to any particular person, that will be his property. I I emboldened that, or I I bolded the type there for you, Gotti, because I want you to understand this is one of the things the Lord is, is telling you today. What he has given to you will be your portion, and you need to get it and hold on to it. You will inherit according to the tribes of your ancestors. The Lord is restoring something to you, today to you, something of your ancestors. Continuing in that portion, but if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land from in front of you, then those you allow to remain will become like thorns in your eyes and stings in your sides. They will harass you in the land where you are living. Now here is just a little map. It happens to be a satellite map. This is a real satellite picture. Uh, and I want you to see, see Israel, uh, the, the people of Israel came from Egypt, crossed over and wandered in the desert and finally made their way up. And now this is the land of Moab or the land of Moab, which is now called Jordan. And they were camped right here. They were camped right here when Moses began to speak to them and say, you are about to cross over. This is the Jordan River. Here's the Sea of Galilee right there, the Canaret. And through, flowing through it, comes the Jordan River all the way down to the Dead Sea. And they were about to cross over just across from Jericho, which is right there. 
You can see Jerusalem right over here. Anyway, that's a real-life picture, not a, not a drawn map. So, Gadi, when you cross over, I want to just emphasize, it does not say if you cross over, it says when you cross over. Some of us may doubt, and you may even find sometimes doubt, that God is going to do something that he promised you, but God never doubts. And if you read his word and examine his word in that way, you will see that when God speaks, it's without doubt. It's without doubt. He declares it, and this will happen. Now, if, not if, but when you cross over, he says to Israel. So Adonai is reassuring Israel about his promise to give them the land. And I don't want to make, I don't want anyone to make a mistake, even though I want this scripture to apply to you because this is your Torah portion. It has fallen to you to be born on this day and have this parasha. But I don't want there, there to be any mistake. There was a real Israel. There was a real time when God said, cross over the Jordan. And he was reassuring them after 40 years of wandering their wilderness that this is the time they were going to come into their inheritance that he promised. Now, Gadi, when, the word when, or the time, period, when, always leads to then. Whenever you have a when, it always leads to then. When you came to Shul this morning, then you came up to the Bema. But God says to Israel, when you cross over, then you shall do three things. And I call this 3D vision because they all start with D in verse 52. So, Gadi, I'm going to say to you, do the Ds. Not in school, but in your spiritual life, in the, in, in the life that you have before the Lord. Do the Ds. Number one, drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. That's what, that, those were God's instructions to Israel. Who were the inhabitants of the land? They were Canaanites and all other kinds of ites. But they were pagans. They were idol worshipers. They were people who were an abomination before the Lord, particularly the Amorites. So he says, drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. He says to Israel again, destroy all their stone figures and destroy all their metal images. In other words, destroy all of their idols. And the third D, demolish all their high places. So, I just want to shake your mind up a little bit, and maybe everyone else who's listening, because some people believe that when God promises something, all we have to do is sit and wait for it. But God says here, first of all, you have to cross over. It's not an if, it's a when. You cross over. When you cross over, then you must do these three things. And all of these three, three things happen to be violent things. And it's almost like Yeshua saying, the kingdom of God is taken by violence. In other words, when God says, I'm giving you the gift of the kingdom, it's not a passive thing, it becomes an active thing for you. And you take what God has promised. If you don't do the deeds, if you don't drive out all the inhabitants of the Lamb from before you. Yarash is the Hebrew root word, Hebrew root word that is being used here, and it has a dual meaning. It means both to expel, drive out, and to inherit. And this should give us a clue, Gadi, if we don't drive out that which 
the world wants of God's, of God's treasure, then we cannot possess it. God wants to give it, and he's promised to give it, but he says, drive it out. Drive out the inhabitants, inhabitants so that you can possess it. And remember, this is a God-given command. This is not a command to be violent anytime you want something. This is a God-given command and a promise. In verse 55, he says, if you don't, if you don't do these three Ds, they will become thorns in your eyes. In other words, they will blind you spiritually. And stings in your sides. They will oppress you. And of course, we know later that this is exactly what happened. From the book of Joshua, chapter 23, verses 12 and 13, we read, If you go back, Joshua stands before the people of Israel, and they've conquered most of the land, and he says, If you go back, know for certain. If you go back on God's word, and you don't obey God's word, then know for certain that even that you are in the land that God has promised for you to possess, because you have not driven out all the inhabitants and haven't destroyed all the idols and you haven't demolished all the high places, know for certain that you will experience thorns and thistles. Sometimes as believers, as followers of Yeshua, we wonder why we are experiencing thorns and thistles. It may be that in our lives... What the Lord has given to us to possess in terms of the kingdom of God, there needs to be some things driven out that are not of God. I was going to put R2-D2, but I couldn't figure out what to say for the R2. (laughs) So here's the second D. Destroy all their stone figures and all their metal statues. In other words, destroy every other god. Why destroy? Why not let? Why not live and let live? Every religion, every every religion is okay. Why, you know, why not just let the people? Why not just let them worship who they want to worship? Well, God says this in Exodus chapter twenty, verses three through five, part of the Ten Commandments: You shall have no other gods before me. Don't even make one that looks like a god. Don't make a statue. Don't make an image, and don't worship other gods. Why did God want to drive those inhabitants out? Because God was protecting Israel from intermingling with those people who were idol worshippers and in Israel falling into idol worship itself. The scripture says, Gadi, maybe you've heard this before from your parents, but the scripture says, bad company corrupts good morals. So the people we hang out with end up rubbing off on us It seems to be inevitable. As much as we want to stand strong, it seems like if we just hang around with those people, that eventually starts to rub off on us. I wish it was always the other way around. It can be. We can have, we can shine a real light for Yeshua in the world, and you can. But I still think we're supposed to pick and choose the friends and people that we really hang out with. Take the light out to the world, but hang around with people who will encourage you in the Lord. The scripture says that Adonai is a jealous God. Jealous? Yeah, he's jealous for his name, which he placed upon Israel and which he placed in us. He's jealous for his name. In Hebrew, it's called Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of the name of God. As a result, later in Israel's history, because they didn't completely obey the Lord in this word, that happens to be your Torah portion, Israel became idolaters. And they didn't trust the Lord, and they were exiled. 
the entire nation went into exile. The northern part first, and then the southern part, Judah, into Babylon. For the very reason of idolatry. Here's the third D. Demolish all their high places. The Canaanites, all those people who lived in Canaan, worshipped in high places. And they, the, the Hebrew word there is Bama, which is the same word for this. Uh, you know, there's a high place that's good and there's a high place that's bad. What makes a high place good and what makes a high place bad? The thing that makes a high place good is that Adonai is the center of it. And he has, he has said, you shall worship me there. What makes it bad? When people build high places like the Canaanites, which were places of pagan worship, worshiping gods who are not gods. Those high places were built on uh, hills or mountains. And I just put a little note in here, Gotti. You won't, re- you, you may not remember this, but for the future, you may want to look this up. In Isaiah chapter 14, there's a, Amazing description uh, that we can certainly say is Satan or applies to Satan. Satan in Isaiah 14 says he wants to be like the Most High. He's going to elevate himself and he wants to be like the Most High. What does that mean? He wants to be worshipped. And so all the people who were worshipping in Canaan were worshipping not Adonai, the God of Israel, but they were worshipping idols demons under Satan's rule. Here's a, here's a picture of a high place that still exists in Israel today. A little caption on it. Each city of the Canaanites had one or more sacred standing stones, which represented Baal, or its own protective deity. Gezer, which is here in Israel, possessed an alignment of such pillars on its high place. And I don't know if you can see it. Let's see. Uh, see that little square box right there? That is an altar, and they sacrificed in worship to their gods. Here's another one. Jeroboam, who rebelled against Solomon's son Jeroboam, uh, built a high place up in the northern part of Israel. And uh, this area here, you can go there and see it today. This area here was a place of sacrifice, and you can go there today. And it's, it's the high place of Jeroboam. But these are not the places designated by God. And the Lord said, demolish all of their high places. Well, Jerusalem is also a high place, but it's a high place for Adonai, the Lord, the God of Israel. I don't know if you've wondered about this, Gadi, but have you ever wondered why there is such a battle over Jerusalem? The question really is, who is going to be worshipped in the high place in Jerusalem? Is that the high place of the Lord God of Israel? Or is it the high place of some other God by called by a different name? That's why there's such a battle over Jerusalem and particularly over the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You know, the latest headlines, Gadi and friends, the latest headlines are that all the peace, uh, the, the, the latest peace efforts have failed. You know, Olmert has resigned as prime minister. Of course, it's a slow death. He's going to be there for probably months to come still. But, you know, now they're crying, oh, the peace effort is dead, it's dead. Well, the peace effort was never alive, in my opinion. It never brought life. But that's why there's such a battle over Jerusalem. Who's going to be worshipped there? Well, Yeshua said in John chapter 4, 
True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Gotti, so I want you to know that that means something. That means that there's a battle over our hearts and over our minds. Because we worship, and the Lord has set in our hearts a high place to worship the Lord God of Israel in his Messiah Yeshua. And so there is naturally going to be a battle over our minds and our hearts. And I want you, should, you need to know that ahead of time. We all need to know that. There's a battle over our minds and our hearts. And whoever captures our mind and our heart will be the winner. And so are we going to submit ourselves to the living God in Yeshua? Or will we continually follow other things, even if it's ourselves? And that's the real question. So not even a D. Israel didn't even get a D. If Israel was in school, Israel didn't even get a D. Israel flunked obedience class. Israel got an F in obedience. Oh, for a while, under Joshua, Israel conquered the land and did all right. And each tribe, each tribe received its due parcel. The large received the large parcel, the small, smaller families received a small parcel. But Israel failed to drive out all the inhabitants. Israel failed to destroy all the idols. And Israel failed to demolish all the high places. So when Joshua died, and the book of Joshua ends, what's the next book? As a result of their failure, the book of Judges was written. I think, had they, had they not failed, had they gotten an A in obedience class, I'm not sure the book of Judges would have ever been written. Who, who can I, I can't tell, I can't, I don't know, but I, that's what I surmise. But because they failed, the book of Judges is all about Israel experiencing thorns in their eyes, and stings in their side, being oppressed. Hashem was willing to fight all along, willing to fight the battle the whole time and give them victory and give you victory, Gadi. Adonai made a covenant with Israel in which he gifted the promised land. He said, this is your land, I promise it to you, I give it to you. Just go in and fight for it. I'll be with you and I'll fight for you. But be submitted to me and trust me. Here's a principle. Again, you may have to get this later to remember it. But covenant, which God made with Israel, covenant results in a gifted inheritance. But we must be willing to be obedient and face the opposition by faith and by actions. In the end, God will fight for us so that we may gain our inheritance. I wrote a little note there. Philippians 1.6 says, The very work that God has begun in us he will surely complete. God is willing to fight for us. We just have to be submitted to him and serve him in that way. I just drew some Midrashic conclusions. Just putting two and two together here from your parasha. Salvation, which Yeshua says in John chapter 4, is of the Jews. Salvation is the gift of God in our Messiah, Yeshua. And God has given you that gift. Rav Shaul writes in Romans chapter 8, this gift is the product of the new covenant. So God has made a covenant. This is the product of the new covenant in Yeshua, and we have become co-heirs. We are inheritors with Yeshua in his glory. We We may not even know how rich that is at this point, but it's rich. But we must be willing to fight the good fight of faith in obedience to God and in obedience to his word. Gadi, this is very important for all of us. Rav Shaul wrote this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12.
Fight the good fight, Timothy. Good fight of faith. So, let's apply this history, his story, I like to say. His story will become your story, Gadi. Just as each person was identified by tribe to receive an inheritance, so you, Gadi, have your identity in Yeshua with a very special inheritance that is just for you. That's just for you. And the only way you will ever know it and receive it is with your heart obedient to the Lord because he wants to give it to you and you need to walk in it. He'll make sure, the Lord will make sure that you gain your inheritance, but you must fight the good fight by faith in Yeshua. I hope this is encouraging for you. I know that maybe you don't feel like fighting, but by the Spirit of God, by the power of God's Spirit, Holy Spirit, and by faith in His Word, you can fight the good fight. God will fight for you. So, crossing over, Gadi. guess that didn't come out too well, did it? It just looks like some boxes, but really those are more stars of David. Well, <laughs> mazel tov on crossing over. Now your, now your fight begins. Your faith walk begins. Mazel tov, Gadi. I'm becoming a bat mitzvah. Today, you are crossing over into adulthood. Of course, you have to go through your teen years first. You know, you may want to go to the teen group, you know, the youth group, and be encouraged by all the godly teenagers that are here at Brot Hashem. Crossing over is not easy, Gadi. And you will undoubtedly face some major ungodly opposition on your way. But Adonai will bring you into your inheritance if you trust him and listen to his voice. I think most of us could say who are adults, who have been here for a while, that it's not easy. It's not easy. And as I grow older and I hear um, Marlene's mom, who is going to turn 100 this year, say, you know, growing old is not for sissies. <laughs> becoming an adult is not for sissies. There are major challenges in becoming an adult, but the Lord will fight for you, and he will be with you. Just trust in him. In the name of Yeshua. Well, Father, we just pray your grace, your mercy, as we all walk before you. But especially today, Lord, I pray for Gadi Elisheva. Lord, that you would be very close to her, that you would encourage her heart to trust in you as she has crossed over, Lord, into a walk of faith before you. We do bless you for her becoming a bat mitzvah. We pray that you would bless her with your presence. I pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. Let's pray. Avinu Makenu, our Father, our King. We come to you today asking for your spirit to teach us, to direct us, to highlight the things that we need to be able to go forward in the things of your kingdom, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. As you know from last week, we started a series. We had the first installment of the book of Galatians. And we're going to seek to work through the entire book of Galatians. And as I shared it, because we had a number of our congregants to ask, say, hey, can you do a teaching on the book of Galatians? And one of the reasons for that is that in, in our, as a Messianic Jewish congregation, that when you meet people in the larger body of Messiah, 
sometimes you get challenged on the way we live. You know, questions about Shabbat, the feast days, and the holy days, and and questions about Torah in general. And some people, because of the book of Galatians, seemingly on the surface, seems to be saying that God did away with Torah. It's been gone, put away, and it's not needed anymore. And any community that says that there's a place for it, needs for it, that people want to say, hey, you guys are, you know, you, you need regulations. That'll straighten you out. Now, we have answers for Galatians. And as I shared last time, some of our answers are hard to get because some of the things behind the book of Galatians is important truth about it. It was written about 2,000 years ago in a culture, in a time, in a place, and it's written to the people of the congregation in Galatia. Several congregations in that region, not just one congregation, but a lot of congregation that they refer to as that area. And there was a certain culture in that time of what was taking place. And Paul is addressing primarily what was happening there. And, and as humans, we tend to take where we are today. We read the Bible and just we go, Poop, put it right in there without always taking into consideration what's the backdrop of where this comes from. And it's always important. There's a biblical term. And if you go to theology school, they'll teach you about exegesis, meaning letting the scriptures speak to you. There's another practice called eisegesis, which means taking your preconceived ideas and reading it into the Bible. We don't want to do eisegesis. But we have a tendency to do that because we all are a product of the culture that's around us. We see things as they are today. Like, i give you one simple one, which is very important. We know in, in the broader scope of things, not dealing with theology now, we view it differently from a theological perspective, but we know in the broader scope of modern culture, there's Christianity and Judaism. May the two never meet. That is the belief how people view it. Christians are, they have buildings of a cross on top of them. Jewish people have synagogues where they might even have a menorah or a star of David on it, have some Hebrew on it. And they go, see, the two are so separate. So when we read a book like Galatians, we tend to start with what we see today. But did you know that when the Galatians, when Paul was writing this, there was no church down the street for Gentile believers to go to? That when they embraced Yeshua, up. Oh, I saw in the corner was third so-and-so church with the cross on it. I guess I go there now. It didn't exist. The cultural context is that Gentiles, non-Jews, who embrace Yeshua, usually because there was a Jewish guy or woman that preached to them about Yeshua, naturally would continue into the religion that was accepted among Rome. Rome didn't accept every religion. But they gave a pass card to Judaism that they could practice their Judaism and not have to be one of the many pagan idol things that Rome, Rome was doing. If you weren't one of the pagan Roman things or part of Judaism, you, Rome would go after you that you weren't sanctioned. You say, what? What happens today? Go over the China. They sanction what groups can be a church and what groups cannot. It's not a new thing. And so, if you were a non-Jew and you came to faith in Yeshua, the natural place that you would go, let's say it was Paul the Apostle that preached to you, 
And you go, okay, I'm rejecting my paganism now. I'm not going back to the idol's temple. I'm not going back to Athena or one of them. I'm not going there. Where's Paul going? Oh, he he went to that building over there. I'm going to that building over there with him. And so non-Jews found themselves coming into Jewish space, which was expressed through what we use the word synagogue. By the way, the word synagogue does not mean a Jewish church. It's just another way of saying assembly. The word church is ecclesia. It means an assembly. It doesn't mean a building. And the word synagogue doesn't mean a building. It means, literally means a assembly of people, a gathering of people. And so you, it was natural for non-Jews to go where their Jewish preachers would go. That only makes sense. And that's where they would go because they couldn't hop in a car and go to the church down the street because no such thing existed. Now, today, it's different. There's plenty of churches down the street. And there are plenty of synagogues down the street. There are all different types of things all over the place. So we have a tendency that when we read a book like Galatians, that we will read it that way. Also, this is all review, but I hope it sticks. Second Peter 3, 15 to 16. This is what Peter says. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which they that are unlearned, and unstable wrestle with as they do also the other scriptures until their own destruction. So Peter was already writing, yeah, I'm familiar with the epistles of Paul, and I'm telling you, people are misunderstanding what he's writing. They're putting words in Paul's mouth that he wasn't teaching. And that includes Galatians, that, that people, and today people do the same thing. I mean, one of the things like people went around like in Book of Acts, it tells us that when Paul came to Jerusalem, the brothers in Jerusalem gathered with him and said, "Hey, we'd like you to participate in this. The, we got some brothers here who had taken a vow of Nazarite vow, and they get ready to complete that vow. And we'd like you to be a part of that and 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 be part of paying for it and dealing with it because there's a rumor going out about you that you are against Torah, that you you are telling Jews everywhere to forsake Torah and that it's done away with." So let's just do this and they'll see that's not true. Because Paul wasn't teaching that. But we have people today who will read Galatians and Colossians and come to the conclusion that, yes, he was teaching that. But he wasn't. So it's not a new thing. 2,000 years ago, they were accusing him of that. And he wasn't doing that. Today, people do the same thing. So Galatians is a hard book to understand. But really, all Paul's epistles are tough. They really are. They really are. Because, one, it's because they are writing to deal with a real situation that was taking place. And so he's writing to deal with that situation. He's not sitting down and saying, well, let me write about this topic and do a full teaching on this particular topic. No, he's writing to deal with the problems in that community. And he, the people he's writing to know what he's talking about. Okay, they know this is what he's dealing with. But a lot of times we don't. And so we have to do study. 
We have to dig into Scripture so that we can approach it in the right way, to have the right understanding, the right meaning as to how it applied. Then once we get that, then we can look at today and say, okay, how do we deal with this today? How do we walk this out? So that was an important thing. I also want you to remember the things that Paul stated about the law in other places. Here's some of the things he says. Romans 3.31. Do we make void the law through faith? On the contrary, by faith, we, ups- we establish or uphold the law. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for conviction, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. All scriptures definitely would include the Torah. And in light of the fact that all the epistles hadn't been written yet, there wasn't any body of book called the New Testament. So the scriptures to them would have been the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketavim, what Christians call the Old Testament. That would have been the scriptures. He said, hey, it is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof. So how, so knowing that, you're like, hey, Paul couldn't be against those things because he's exhorting people that these scriptures are there for developing right doctrine and teaching. Romans seven twelve, the law is indeed holy, the commandment holy, righteous, and good. In Romans, he says, the word is near us, even in our mouths, that we may do it. Romans 8, this talking about the law of the spirit of life and Messiah, that it was, the purpose of that is so that we might fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Romans 7, 22, for I delight in the law of God in my most inward self. Acts 28, 5, Paul says, neither against the law of Moses nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I offended in everything, anything at all. First Timothy 3, I mean 1, 8, but we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. We also want to remember some simple things that Yeshua says. He says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And I always like to give the meaning of what that means because I've sometimes run into brothers in the Lord who says, right, he fulfilled it so we don't have to anymore. So if it's been done and he's completed the work, he went out and planted the corn and got everything around. So there's nothing else to do. You don't, you don't have to do anything anymore. But that's not what that means. When it talks about fulfilling something, it means to bring forth its fullest meaning and understanding. Because if you're telling me that once I complete it, I can now destroy it, I'm kind of working against what I just said. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, to bring it to its full meaning. To fill full what the intent of the Father was. The other thing that Yeshua said, it says that anyone who teaches against the commandments of God will be least in the kingdom of God. So just remember all that about Paul, another truth about your Bible studies. So all too often when we study the Bible, we're studying a passage from a certain book, let's say. We make this mistake. We really do sometimes. We forget that the Bible has other things said in other places on that topic. But we want to zoom in so closely on this one topic. One example of that would be what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 7 concerning marriage. Zoom in on that. And forget that over in Ephesians, he says, love your wives. Lay down your life for her. Well, this is the same Paul that's talking about 1 Corinthians 7. And over here, he says, hey, hey, men, lay down your life for your wives. Love them, care for them, nourish them with the word. Women, submit to your husbands. 
That your marriage is a representation of the relationship of the body of Messiah to, to Yeshua himself. Well, if you leave out the Ephesians part, you might zoom in on Corinthians 7 and come to some conclusions that Paul never meant. So the important thing is always, that's why I take time to mention other things in other places he said about the law so that when you dig into a difficult passage, you have to realize that whatever interpretation you give to it has to jive with everything else he's already said on the subject. It's very important. Okay, quickly, points from the text. Point one, this is from last week. Paul says he was sent not by man or from a man's organization, but was sent by God the Father and his Son, Yeshua the Messiah, the anointed one who was raised from the dead. Note the emphasis of the Messiah and the raising from the dead. Number two, point two, grace and peace comes from the Father and from Yeshua, who is the Messiah, who is the Lord, and who gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for your sin. Note the emphasis on grace, unmerited favor, and peace, completion, or wholeness that comes from the sacrifice for our sins. That's the emphasis. It didn't come from how many works you did, but from the sacrifice of, for our sins. Point three, that Yeshua died for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil world. Note the emphasis that his death is so we can be delivered from this present evil word. Point four we talked about. Point four is I emphasize that the introduction, sometimes people read through the introduction of epistles very quickly, thinking it's just, you know, like we do sometimes. Hey, how you doing? I'm writing to you and the weather's nice here and I hope things are well with you. And, and then we get into the body of what we wrote. No, Paul's introduction is carefully crafted. The Holy Spirit is leading him. He's very much aware of what he's about to deal with. And so this introduction itself lays the answer to what he's about to address. That the introduction is not simply about nice opening greetings, but in them he presents the very foundation of the good news he originally delivered to them, which centers around the meaning of the Messiah, the centrality of his resurrection, overcoming death, the being atoned for, brought to right standing with God, is through the sacrifice of Yeshua that his death is more than simply being forgiven, but also about the empowerment of his deliverance that sets us free from the evil world system as established by Satan. All of that's built into just the introduction. If you really upstood, if we were really understand introduction, we'll be starting to put ourselves on solid ground of what the gospel is all about. Paul is purposely emphasizing Yeshua's death, that he's the son, that he, all, all that's there, just an introduction. Point five, his concern is that the churches throughout Galatia, that there are some who have abandoned the gospel that the apostles originally gave them to follow another gospel. That's why Galatians being written, that people were forsaking what the apostles had taught them to embrace another gospel. Then Romans 6, that the abandoning, the abandoning of the gospel that was given to them is not a secondary issue. 
It's not a minor issue. It's not about whether the carpet should be this color, whether you, have, whether you should say this blessing or that blessing. It's not about that. This is a serious issue. So much so that he says if anybody, including themselves, the ones that establish a community, would come with another gospel, let them be accursed. That's heavy stuff. That's not minor stuff. That's not an argument over what time should you start your service on Shabbat. That's not the argument here. We can argue that and have probably some good fights over that. This is about a serious issue of your very way that you get right standing with God. And this is why Paul is so tough on it. So he mentions again that the gospel he preached to them was not by man, nor was it taught it, but he received it from revelation from Yeshua the Messiah. He's saying that because Paul, as a Pharisee, understood what it meant to be in an organization where he will be sent out, where he, his authority, where his power, his position comes from another organization. He went to the Sanhedrin and said, I need letters so I can go find my Jewish brethren who have accepted Yeshua as the Messiah, go find them, bring them back, try them, and have them put to death. He said, I'm not here on my own. I have letters. I've been sent with authority from the Sanhedrin to find Ken and bring him back and kill him, even though he's my Jewish brethren. But now he's saying, my being an apostle, which means to be sent, he says, I wasn't sent by man or by man's organization. I was sent by Yeshua himself. He called me and sent me out to proclaim this message. That's important because he's trying to make the Galatians see that the stuff they are adopting is moving away from the one that was nailed to the tree and raised from the dead for their sins. This is what he's trying to get across to them. So all this is, is there. Now, it begs the question. Ralph is already asking the question. It begs the question. What is the gospel that Paul and his apostolic team delivered to the Galatian community as a foundational truth? And what is the pseudo-gospel that others were bringing in that was seducing the Galatians away from the foundational truth. You know, the word gospel, we get our word evangel from that. It means to preach good news. Okay, that's what the gospel, that's why some translations translate the word gospel as good news. And Paul calls the other gospel, not just, he says, well, there's another gospel. He says, well, it's really not another gospel. In other words, he's saying, I'm here to bring you the good news but they are bringing you the fake news, a pseudo-gospel, fake news. The news I have for you is really good, true, foundational, good news. This makes it, you know, today's society, everybody talks about fake news. Well, that was fake news. It's not good news at all what they were bringing. It's fake news, pseudo-news, pseudo-gospel. And he has to bring a correction to them. So that's what we want to start to go in. There's so much in Galatians, we definitely will not get a whole lot of today, but I, I think I'll say, Lord, there's so much here, I want to look at each part, and, you know, and I felt the Lord saying, well, you, you got to lay out a basic foundation of the good news and the pseudo news, so that we will know what we're dealing with as we dig deeper into Galatians, which will take several weeks to be able to do all this. So, in Galatians 2, because we have finished Galatians 1, he begins to spell it out slowly and then eventually hit it very hard. 
So we'll take about the first 14 verses and look at that. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. So he's talking about his travels. I didn't, when I got this message, I didn't run to the apostles to tell me, for them to tell me what the gospel is. No, I went somewhere else. And then later on, I, I went up here and went there. And he says, I went to Jerusalem, which at the time was the apostolic center of the body of Messiah for the believers in Yeshua. That's where they established. Later on, it got kind of moved to Antioch, but Jerusalem was the place. This is where the Jewish believers were. This is where it was established. And so they would go out, as Yeshua says, from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. So Jerusalem came central to this launching out of the kingdom of God and the good news. And so he talks about that. He's like, I came to Jerusalem with Barnabas, who was another Jewish believer. He said, we came. But then he says, and also I took Titus with me. Why does he mention Titus? Well, Titus wasn't Jewish. Titus was a Gentile. And from what we know about it, Titus was probably an uncircumcised Gentile. Because he goes on and says, and I went up by revelation. I went there because God let me to go there. And communicated to teach that gospel, communicated to them that gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did it privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means... I might have run or had run in vain. I mean, if you were back in those days and you knew Paul was running around with letters to arrest Jewish believers and take them to Jerusalem and have them put to death for believing in Yeshua, and now the rumor's going around that, hey, he who used to do that is now different and changed, and he's preaching Yeshua now. Uh Uh-huh. Really? Uh, Well, we're still talking to Stephen's family about what happened there. What do you mean? Well, he's coming here. He wants to meet with you guys, really. He wants to meet with us. Mm. He wants to come to the community and talk to the whole community. Really, he wants to talk to the whole community. We ain't going to allow that. Uh-uh. I tell you what, we'll get some of the leaders together. We will meet with him privately so that, you know, maybe some of us will get arrested, but we will protect the body. He's not coming to the assembly and going to address the assembly. We're gonna, we'll deal with him privately because who knows what he's teaching? We don't quite know what he's teaching. So he makes it clear that he's come under examination before the leadership of the community. This is important for him to say this to Galatia because we we saw in the first chapter there were some who were questioning Paul's intention. They were questioning Paul as an apostle. And so he has to establish like, hey guys, I did go up to Jerusalem. First of all, I didn't receive it from, from man. I'm not here representing man anymore. I'm here representing Yeshua. By the power of God, that's why I'm here. By the revelation I received. But I did go up to the leadership in Jerusalem and they met with me privately to make sure that, you know, I wasn't teaching something weird. And then he says this, he throws this in and he gives us a hint of some of the things. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Why do you throw that in there? It's giving, again, he's laying out, starting to say what the, what the issue was at Galatians. So he let us know, Titus came with me. I'm sure that Barnabas and Titus were not the only people with them. They had an apostolic team of people that traveled together. But he mentioned Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and he mentions Titus, and then he throws in, hey, I went up to these guys, I met with them, and they didn't even require for Titus to be circumcised. And he's a Greek! Interesting. And this occurred... 
And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in in stealth to spy out liberty which we have in Messiah Yeshua, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might be continued with you. But from those who seem to be something, those who seem to have a power and authority, uh, and others who were running around, whatever they are, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. Because I'm not here because I'm looking for the favor of man. I'm, that's not why I'm doing what I'm doing. He's at, it doesn't matter to me. Now don't, don't understand, don't make Paul say something he doesn't understand. Because other places he tells us to pray, pray for leaders, prays for those who are in authorities. He tells us to respect to the governing authorities in Romans 14 and Romans 15 and places like that. So he's not saying, hey, you can just be against authority. No, he's not saying that at all. He's just saying that he's not looking to other people for the message that he's proclaiming. It comes from God. I'm not looking for approval from anyone. I understand where Paul is coming from. And sometimes people misunderstand me when I say this. I am not looking to please anybody in here. Not any of you. I love you all, but I'm not looking to please you. I love my wife. And I have to please her because I want to be able to sleep safely at night. <laughs> okay? But my love for my wife is driven more from my commitment to God and his kingdom and his call for me to love my wife than it is out of what I think I can get from her. She, she, no matter what happens with her, I am compelled by God to love her. And likewise, she lays her life, she, she, she submits to me, not because I'm always easy to submit to. Okay? We didn't ask for any comments from the peanut gallery over here. But because out of her desire to please the one that she's going to stand before and have to give her account of her life, she will commit herself to submitting to me and trusting God through that. So I want to understand that Paul's not trying to have an arrogance attitude. I don't care what they got to say. I ain't listening to them. It's not what he's saying. He says, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. They didn't give anything to my credentials, to the call of God on my life. I didn't go there so that I could come back and say, I got a certificate from the apostles in Jerusalem. I'm somebody now. It's not why I was there. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel, the good news for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was committed to Peter... For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Goyim, towards the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be the pillars, preached the grace, wow, the grace that had been given to me, when they perceived it, when they perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also 
was eager to do. There's a side note when he says room to pour. He's not talking about the poor in general. You find throughout Paul's epistles that he's constantly concerned about Jerusalem and what's happening to people in Jerusalem. And that is what, that's why they put that emphasis. Don't forget Jerusalem, Paul. We know you're going out to the nations, but don't forget what's happening here with our people. So he says, oh, I'm, I'm not going to do that. In fact, he makes it very clear that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Over and over. In the Corinthians, what did he do? He took up a big offering to take care of the saints in Jerusalem that had gone through a great famine. He was always remembering Jerusalem, was always on his hand because he knew that Jerusalem was the apple of God's eye and he wasn't going to forsake it. And it's after the flesh, it's his people, right? So now he establishes very clearly, Titus came and they didn't make him get circumcised. They checked out my gospel message and the end result of it, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, not the left foot of disfellowship. They gave me the right hand of fellowship and, and, and they received me and they said, yeah, you go to the Goyim, man. God's working in you. So he's, this is his way of saying to the Galatians, I'm not here on my own in the sense of just coming up with my own ideas. And since you guys are worried about the authority structure, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. And by the way, they didn't require Titus to be circumcised. So then he goes on. Now he gets to the tough stuff. That when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews who played the hypocrite with him, they also did the same. So much so that even Barnabas was carried away with the same hypocrisy and withdrew from the Gentiles. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to them before them all, he said to Peter, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compare Gentiles to live as Jews? And we will impact that in a minute. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. I'm going to go back to that. Well, to understand some of this stuff about them withdrawing from the Gentiles from the table. Now, some people think this. I'm about to give you the interpretation some people have. Peter was at that table having some lobster, some hog jaws, some chitlins. He was throwing down on that. Mm, 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 mm. And then the party of the circumcision came in and he felt bad about it. Now I got to get away from this table and he withdrew and he stopped eating it. And that Paul would say, you used to eat all those things and now you're not eating it. That's how a lot of people interpret the reverse. But that's not what it's saying. It's very clear that the issue wasn't over what he was eating. It's who he was eating with. That's the issue. I eat with lots of different people. And I can show you that when I've eaten in various places at various times, the lobster gets passed on to the next person. I can sit down with a table. I could sit down with people and family and they could order the pork chops and just because I'm eating with them doesn't mean I'm eating the pork chops. So this issue has to do with a belief concerning these Gentile believers in Yeshua. And so we have to take a detour. Got 10 minutes to do that. Wow. We're going to go back to Acts. And we want to quickly see if we can do this. Acts 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, 
a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. This guy is not a Jew. He's a Gentile, is what they refer to as a God-fearer. In the first century, there were Gentiles who realized that all these idols and statues are not gods at all. And they looked over at Israel and looked at the Jewish people and said, that's the true God. We want to worship the true God. We don't want to be involved with all this idolatry. But they didn't go and submit themselves to a practice that the Pharisees offered, which was through ceremonial circumcision, they could now change the status from being a Gentile to being a Jew. They had not done that. They, they were Gentiles who could sit in the back at the synagogue and hear the message. And a lot of these guys were in the synagogue when Paul came in and preached. And there was a lot of those God-fearers who were Gentiles who embraced Yeshua. There were also straight-out pagans that embraced Yeshua too. But understand, Cornelius is not a pagan. He believed in the one true God. He just didn't submit himself to what the Pharisees were offering him through ceremonial circumcision. But anyway... It says, about the ninth hour of the day, Peter saw clearly in a vision an angel of God. I'm sorry, Cornelius. Cornelius, about the ninth hour of the day, Cornelius, clearly in a vision, an angel of God coming to him saying, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid. And he says, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your arms have come up before a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. So Cornelius gets an angelic visit and says, go to Joppa and ask for Peter. Now get the dynamics here. A Gentile is sending his Gentile servants to go out and find Peter and send for Peter to come to a Gentile house. It says he is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of the household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. You know, in those days, they used the top of the houses. They were flat. You know, today we, we build a deck. We build a patio. That's where we go hang out, hang outside. Well, they didn't do that. Things, if you ever go into one, some of these small cities, they didn't have the space to do that. So if you wanted space, you used the top of your house as a place to go out and hang out to get outside. That's what Peter was doing, and he was hungry. You know, it's time for lunch or something. He's like, oh man, I'm really hungry. But he's praying and the more he prayed, you, you all have been there. You've been praying and all of a sudden your stomach starts growling. I'm praying right now. Oh man, I'm really hungry. I need something to eat. But he gets a vision. Let's talk about this vision. He saw the heavens open, verse 11. And an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descended to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now I've read so many commentaries from my brothers and Messiah in different circles that say that at that point, Peter pulled out his Google map, figured out where the nearest crab shack was, and went running to it. Been passing it all these days on the way to synagogue. Said, man, them Gentiles are like they really having a good time at that crab shack. 
Now God told me to go rise, kill, and eat. I'm, I'm on my way. And after I'm finished there, I'm going to get the rib shack around the corner. I've heard so many people. One, I won't mention his name, but one particular preacher I have a great respect for. I will mention his name because he has materials that's so wonderful. And that would be Tony Evans. If you want one of the best series on how to have a godly marriage, get it from Tony Evans. But please don't get his series about the law of God. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> He's missing it there. But if you want a good teaching on how to have a better marriage, his stuff is great, wonderful. So Peter, he did not run to the latest rib shack. But look what Peter did. Not so, Lord. You got to let that sink in. God gives you a vision of lane, revelation. The Holy Spirit is moving your eyes open. Open vision. You're seeing and there's the angelic power from heaven. God's power is there. And he says, Lane, rise up. I know you're a good Jewish girl, but rise up and go have some crabs. Go have some ribs. And your response to the heavenly vision is, no, Lord. See, some people miss that. But you got to let that sink in. He said no to God. He said no. Why? Well, maybe he had in mind the scripture in Deuteronomy. It talks about a, a prophet who comes to you and prophesies and it comes to pass. But then they tell you to go do things that were against things that God already told you to do. He says, don't fear that man. God is testing you to see if you would do all that he said to do. Maybe he had that, in, that Torah verse in his mind. It was running through and he went, no, Lord. No. He says, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Peter didn't run to the rib shack. Instead, he wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. Behold, the men who had been sent him from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. Now, you don't know how to answer that. A bunch of Gentiles show up in front of your Jewish door saying, is Peter here? Well, it says, while Peter thought about this vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. This is great stuff, right? The Spirit let him know, hey, there, there are people down there waiting on you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you sent. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a good, a just man who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house, and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in. He invited these Gentiles into his Jewish house and lodged them. It wasn't even his Jewish house. It was another friend's Jewish house. But he says, oh, come on in. You're going Come on in. We'll put you up for the night. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied them. And the following day, they entered Caesarea, now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. 
I don't know if his relatives were God-fearers like him or his close friends, but he has a bunch of Gentiles up in this house, what you got to see. A bunch of non-Jews all in this house. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down to his feet and worshipped. But Peter lifted him up and said, stand up. I myself am also a man. You don't worship me. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. It was one thing having Cornelius. Oh, come on into the parlor here. And here are all these Gentiles packed in the room. He said, well, why does that matter? Well, let's go keep reading. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go in one of another's nation to go into them. But God, over. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common unclean. That's the meaning of the vision. It had nothing to do with food at all. It just got his attention. But the meaning of the vision has to do with God is making, going to make the goyim, these men from the Gentiles, to no longer be considered common or unclean. God says, what I've cleansed, what I've cleansed, is no longer to be considered common and unclean. Now, you got to get this thing with Peter. He's been raised. By the way, that, that teaching is an oral tradition. Gentiles could come to the temple and offer up sacrifices, always have been able to. This was an oral tradition that came out of the Pharisees who says, hey, and, and maybe for good logic and reason, you don't know what them Gentiles have been doing. They, they're into idolatry and eating strange stuff and doing weird things and all kind of immorality. And if you go hang out with them, they may make you, undef- make you defiled so you're not able to participate in the worship at the temple. So, you know, let's just don't, don't invite them into your homes. Don't go to their homes. You can buy stuff in the marketplace. You can sell stuff in the marketplace for, for certain things, but we don't do that. This is what is expected among the Pharisees. If you are part of the Pharisees, you are expected that you keep yourself separated from the Gentiles. And yet, Peter invites them into the home that he's staying at. And he was smart enough to take some other Jewish people with him. He didn't know whether he'd get around the corner and they'd knock him upside the head. He didn't know what to expect. But he gets there, and it's not just Cornelius. He may have been able to deal with Cornelius. Oh, you're a God-fearer. That's cool. That's all right. But then, what? Oh, what are all these other people up in here? Oh, my goodness. And so he tells him, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. And I asked them, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, said, Cornelius, your prayers has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So he sent to you, so I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present together before God, we're present before God, to hear all the things commanded to you by God. How would you like that? Go with these people. You get there and they say, okay, what, what you got for us? You haven't had a chance to study. Get, that, get together your spiritual notes. Check the Hebrew, check the Greek. You haven't been able to do all that. You just come up and say, you got a message, Mr. Jackson. Give it. Okay. 
Well, Yeshua told his disciples that. He said, you'll be delivered for kings and rulers and all that. He says, don't worry about what you're going to say ahead of time. It will be given to you at that moment. And so here's one time where Peter is operating in that. And he says, verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Yeshua the Messiah, he is the Lord of all. This is the season. It's starting to lay out the gospel. The message, the word given to Israel that God was going, that he spoke to the prophets, that he was going to bring peace. Peace with who? Peace with God. Reconciliation with God. And who is this through? Yeshua, who is the Messiah. Sometimes we miss it when we say Jesus Christ because we think Christ is his last name. And we miss the meaning that's there. Yeshua, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that we believe as Jewish people, he is saying, Peter said, we believe that the Messiah come, the kingdom of God will come and be established. There will be peace and reconciliation with God and every evil thing will be put away and we will be made holy and we will be made righteous. And this comes through Yeshua, the Messiah. He is the Lord of all. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Yeshua of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all those who were pressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. That's the gospel in a nutshell, that whoever will believe in he who is the Messiah will receive remission of sin. That is the message. So while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And scholars will say when they use the word heard here, it doesn't just mean that they heard the sound, but they heard with understanding. It speaks to the issue of their heart, that they hear this and it's like, this resonates with me. I'm hearing this. And because they're starting to exercise this faith in the truth of the message that Yeshua died for their sins, was raised up, and they could receive forgiveness of sin, that the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. Wow. Verse 45, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Remember, Peter brought a bunch of other Jews with him just in case. And then they're sitting there with their mouths open up. How did those Gentiles get our Holy Spirit? We're the Jews. 
We're the covenant people. We're the ones of the call. We're the one with the promises. We're the one with the hopes. We're the one that God set aside. We're the olive tree that he set aside and it's for us. And we remember that on the day of Shavuot. He pulled that spirit out when we were celebrating Shavuot, man. He just pulled that spirit on us, you know. And he made a distinction even there between Jews who believe in Yeshua and Jews who didn't. The Jews who believe in Yeshua received the Holy Spirit. The ones other there, though they were believing in God and though they were believing, you know, celebrating Shavuot, the Holy Spirit wasn't pulled out on them at that time. Only the believers of Yeshua, the Jewish believers in Yeshua, received the Holy Spirit. Then the others were offered that they too, if they would believe in Yeshua, if they were baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, that they too could not only receive forgiveness of their sins, but they could receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But they saw that as a Jewish thing. They, they, had a, they didn't have a problem with that. You know, eventually we'll go to the Gentiles, we'll convert them all and make them all Jews, and then they can receive the Holy Spirit too. But God does this work when he pours it out. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How did they know the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out? How did they know? How did they know? For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized? Does anyone can say these can't go to the water of, of mikvah? See, in, in the Pharisaic way, you study for a certain amount of time when you became a convert. You got circumcised if you were a man after you healed from your circumcision. And then you were approved by the bet demon council that decided whether or not your conversion was true. Then you would submit to the waters of mikvah. So when Peter asks, can anyone here forbid this? Because they all got in their mind the Pharisaic way of doing things. And they're like, can anyone? Anyone going to stand up and say, no, we got to circumcise them guys first. They need to do a year study. Nobody said anything because he said they received the Holy Spirit like we Jews did. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of our Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So I'm going to try to finish this out, but you know, this baptism, mikvah, is more than about being dunked in water. And, and Judaism in those days, they didn't only do one baptism, they had lots of baptisms. When a woman came off her menstrual cycle, she would go through the waters of mikvah. When men would be involved in certain things, they would go through the waters of mikvah. For some, it was a regular thing. Every right, every day before going to Sabbath, they would go through the waters of a mikvah. It's very common. This mikvah would always represent the waters of baptism show that something's happened to you that now wants to separate the life that you had before into the new life that you have now. When Peter commanded them to be baptized, he was saying that even without circumcision, God has done a work in your life that when you come out of that water, you are a new creation and you're accepted by God. Now, the story doesn't end there. The 11th chapter goes on that Peter's got to go home after a few days and go back to the Jewish assembly and community. And he finds out that it wasn't necessarily a fully a warm welcoming. It says, verse 2, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision party contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Oh, that's what we heard in Galatians. You ate with them. It's interesting, the same thing was said in Luke concerning Yeshua, that he would sit down and he would eat with publicans and sinners and everything, and the, the Pharisee party got mad and said, you eat with the Gentiles. I mean, without the Gentiles, but with unclean people. How dare you? You eat with people who are considered sinners. And so this is kind of what they're saying now. Peter, you ate with sinners. The Gentiles are sinners. And you ate with them. 
We heard about it. Isn't it amazing that it spread that quickly? And they didn't even have, have uh, you know, cell phones or anything. <laughs> but, but the word got back, boy. Oh, man, did you hear about what Peter did? We saw Peter. I was the other day walking by, and he was at Simon's house, the tanner. And next thing I know, they open up the door, and he let all these goyim, these Gentiles, into the house. And they stayed there overnight. Can you believe that? And then the next morning, he went out with them. And we heard, we got on good good hearing because somebody who lived down the street from Cornelius, we saw that Cornelius got all these Gentiles together and Peter went in there with them. I think he was eating with them. I think he was hanging out with them. And so when he got back, Peter, we heard you were hanging out with the Gentiles, that you were fellowshipping with the Gentiles. I imagine Peter felt put on the spot. The scriptures tell us that Peter then recounted everything that happened. And I won't read all of that, but he counted everything that happened and how he went back and went out. And I'll pick up verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon me as upon us in the beginning, us being the Jewish people. Then I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Spirit of God. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, when we believed on the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. In other words, we did not receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because we were Jews. Because the only people that received the gift of the Holy Spirit on that Shavuot day were the followers of Yeshua who believed on Yeshua as the Messiah. The rest of the Jewish people celebrating Shavuot, faithful to the Torah, yet they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they had not believed on the Messiah that God had been speaking a long time through the prophets that he would send him. So Peter brings that up and says, we believe in the Lord Yeshua the Messiah who was, who was I that I would, who was I that I would withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God. Here's a key verse. God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And very quickly, just to lay the foundation, I'll have to cut some of this short. The story's not over. Even although all that had happened, we find in the 15th chapter, as Paul and Peter and others and Gentiles are getting saved, and as I said, they couldn't go to the church down the street. No such thing existed. So all of a sudden, you know, the guy goes, maybe it was Sabbath Goy, I don't know, went to open up the synagogue for Shabbat service and get the door open, and standing out there is a line of Gentiles who had embraced Yeshua as the Messiah. We're ready to go worship God, man. And like, uh, who are you people? We believe in Yeshua. We've been brought into the people of God. Yeah, but you're still Gentiles. You, you, you come back later, and we'll, we'll have a rabbi for you and, and, and work on you and you know, get you circumcised and get you keeping some uh, distinctives of the Torah before, you, before we can accept you. So they were finding these people. See, if it was a separate church, I mean, you don't have synagogues today, people, rabbis going into Baptist, Methodist, Catholic churches going in. Excuse me! You guys keeping the Torah. They, they don't care. They don't want anything to do with it. But back then, these Gentiles were in their space. In, and in their face. And they're like, oh my goodness, we gotta do something about this. And so the Pharisees, some of them who believe, Paul was a Pharisee, but so he wasn't one of that group. But some insisted that these Gentiles, that they were not in right standing with God by believing in Yeshua, that they needed to be circumcised. And by that, I don't mean just the physical surgery. People get that 
Jew and Gentiles alike, babies are circumcised in America. No, we're talking about the ceremony associated with it to formally be considered, considered to be a Jew. Unless they do that and the customs of Moses, which I think is not just the Torah, but the interpretation, the oral traditions that come with that. Many times that's what is meant when they talk about keeping the law. People weren't talking about thou shall not kill, thou shall not murder. They were looking at the many, many, many traditions that were brought along the way. And they were insisting, they were going into these communities, finding the Gentiles, and they said, well, you're not really part of the community. You're not really accepted yet. You got to convert and become a Jew first or else that's it. You got to become a proselyte or you're not received. Believing in Yeshua is not enough to make you right with God. But Paul didn't take that easy. And so Paul was fighting with these people and finally they decided, let's go up to Jerusalem and make a decision about this. And so I'll leave you to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to jump down to some pertinent parts. Verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believe, rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Paul's going around saying, hey, these Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit. They got the gifts of the Holy Spirit moving upon them. They received the Holy Spirit. God's doing a great work. We're baptizing them, guys. They're getting to the waters. But no, you got to circumcise them for them to be really fully accepted. Yeshua's not enough. So they came together, verse 6, the apostles and the elders to consider this matter. It's the first church council in Jerusalem. And there was a lot of dispute. You can imagine that day was a a lot of people arguing over this thing. Eventually, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by the mouth, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their, their hearts by faith. In other words, Peter saying, Hey, guys, we're not purified just because we're Jews. We know we have, all men fall short of the glory of God. We know that even our righteous works are like filthy racks to the Lord. We also have the, have accepted believing in Jesus' sacrifice and atonement as the way that we would have right standing with God. We're not depending on how well we keep the Torah to get that right standing. We're keeping, getting that right standing by, by the nature of Torah that proclaim a sacrifice. In Numbers, we're told, there was a time when the children of Israel violated the Torah and complained against God. And God sent vipers, very venomous snakes, to bite them, and they would die from this. And they cried out, Moses! Moses talked to God, very interesting instruction from God. Moses, I want you to fashion a bronze serpent. I want you to put it on a stake and hold it up. And tell the people, whoever looks to this pierced, crucified serpent will be healed. And right away, some people say, well, that's an image. Uh, we shouldn't be looking at images because that's wrong. And it's a serpent by all means. It's not even kosher. Come on. Couldn't we put a cow on it? Well, we did that. We did that at Mount Sinai. That didn't work so well. The calf, that didn't work so well then either. Some people probably really got their medical journals. I don't know about that, but I'm going to figure out how to keep this Venom, this poison from really affecting me. I'm going to find an herb or something to take. I'm going to be really commit myself to that so I will be made whole. Some chose to establish their own right standing with God and rejected the way of God of how to have a right standing with him. He says, look at the serpent. 
And in the Gospel of John, they use the same illustration with Yeshua. That Yeshua says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, the Son of Man shall be lifted up. And whoever looks to him, and that's the verse right before, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I know that we know that part about John John 4.16, but how about the verse before? It says, as a serpent is lifted up, and you look to the serpent, so likewise the Son of Man shall be lifted up. For God so loved the world. That this thing is not a new thing of how being made righteous. He established it right back in Torah, how he will give people a right standing before him. Through the atoning sacrifice of Yeshua the Messiah, prophesied throughout Scripture. And Peter says the same thing. Purifying their hearts by faith. Why do we put a yoke upon them that neither we or our fathers were able to bear? For we believe that through the grace of the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter understood at that time that whether Jew or Gentile, the good news is that God has provided his son as the means by which you can be made righteous before God, to have right standing with God, that you can be justified before him. Now, you can choose to neglect that. You can choose to come up with your own means of salvation. Romans 10, Paul says, I bear witness of my people. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Rejecting God's way of righteousness, they've gone about and established their own. But I preach to you what was preached before. That the word is near you, even in your mouth, that you may do it. That's good news. The promise of a changed life, a promise of redemption, a promise of being forgiven for your sin is found in trusting in Yeshua. His atoning sacrifice for your sins. This is the gospel message. Look what Paul says. We left off, and this is where we will close. Verse 16, Galatians 2. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Yeshua the Messiah. Even we, we Jews, have believed in Messiah Yeshua that we may be justified by faith in Messiah and not by the works of law. For the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Because men fall short of his glory. Can I be declared righteous in your own bit? Because if you miss one little point, you become guilty of his all. What was happening in Galatians, and there's a whole lot more to say, but we're out of time, is that these Gentiles throughout the area of Galatia heard the message of Yeshua being preached, and they accepted Yeshua as their Lord, as their Messiah. And in return for that, they received the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues. In that time, it was very clear. That's what was happening to them. The Spirit of God came to live inside of them. That they were translated from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light, not by the external dimensions of who they are, but who they believed in. And God did this great work, and they started to walk with the Lord. Power of the Holy Spirit, knowing they're part of God's people. They once were far off, now they've been brought near, partaking, partaking of the fatness of the olive tree. Made to be members of the commonwealth of Israel made to be of the household of God not because they had become Jews or not because they were Gentiles but because they believed on him who became the atoning sacrifice for their sins they put their trust 
in the sacrifice of Yeshua. That that way of living, being able to walk in righteousness, is based on believing in Yeshua and what he's done. Because his dying for you not only forgave you of your sins, but his dying for you empowers you that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in your life. He empowers you to walk in newness of life. This all comes through trust and faith. There's nothing we can boast about, about how well we have done whatever. But there were those here who were walking in faith, and there were others who came in. Hey, praise the Lord. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. You're a Gentile, right? Yeah, I'm a Gentile. Really? And you're here in the synagogue? Yeah. Well, how, why are you here? Well, I, this guy Paul came. He's a Jew. He's one of you guys. He's a Pharisee. And he preached Yeshua's death and resurrection and, and said that they experienced this. And, and, and we, something happened inside of me as I was hearing that message. And something just stirred inside of me that, that this is true. And I embraced this Yeshua as my Messiah, as my Lord. I accepted his atoning sacrifice. I looked on him who was pierced and raised up. And when I looked at him, I was healed of the venom that was running through my body. And I'm still excited. And then this person said to them, hold on. That's not enough. You're not yet a part of God's people. You're not yet righteous before God. You, you need, you know, the scripture says you got to follow God's commandments and, and you need to, to be part of the people of God. And, and you can't be that way through Yeshua. You, you got to come through. See, we have a, 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 a 10 step program and you can come and be a part of that and we'll teach you. It takes about a year to complete the whole thing, but we'll show you. And at the end of that, we will circumcise you and then we'll baptize you again. And then you will be considered proselytes and you will be considered a Jew. And then you can be the people of God. But you can't be the people of God as a Gentile. And some of them, maybe because of the pressure of society in that day, I mean, they are in Jewish space, right? They're not down the street. And they're going, well, well, we really want to be a part of this community. And if you're saying we're not really receiving, we'll submit ourselves to those things. Paul had few words with this fake news. This fake news that seek to push away the sacrifice of Yeshua. To establish men's traditions and rules as the way that you're going to achieve righteousness. And I have more to say about that, Lord willing, in weeks to come. Thank you, Father. Father, we thank you for Yeshua. The atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Messiah. The anointed one. The one who is Lord of all, the one who conquered death, was raised up. He's alive. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, God, we celebrate that through him we are made a holy people. It doesn't matter our pedigree, whether we're Jew or Gentile. What matters is our faith. For without faith, you say, it's impossible to please you. Thank you for giving us faith to trust in Yeshua. Let us not substitute anything else. In Yeshua's name. Thank you, Lord. On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio. Uh, all right, so we're back. We're booking the, back in the book of John, chapter 5. I'm enjoying it. 
some of you are probably enjoying it when we get to it. And I understand we have breaks. But uh, John chapter 5. Uh, today, and if you're, don't worry, we're not getting through the whole message. That's okay. Um, last week was a little extra long. It was Israel, but um, now you can clock me. Okay. So, um, oh, yeah. John chapter 5. This little section, we've just finished a, a couple other sections. We're at John chapter 5. I almost see it today like a, not a trial, but like a trial. There is the witness for the prosecution. That's a great old-time movie. Anyway, witness for the prosecution. And then there's the witnesses for the defense. John chapter 5, it seems like John is bringing into a court the witnesses for the defense. He's bringing into a court the witnesses for who Yeshua is. He's proving who Yeshua is. And Yeshua and John are showing us all the witness for the prosecution. Mankind against Yeshua, against God. And so we see that going on right now in chapter 5. I'm thinking of trials, and I thought of uh, the movie Les Mis. Some of you may have seen it. There's about four or five different versions. It's really, really great. But I'm thinking of one trial scene in Les Mis. The main character, Jean Valjean, um, he uh, was arrested for uh, stealing a loaf of bread back in France in the 18th century. And anyway, so he is, he, he breaks his parole. He leaves his place and he becomes a very, very wealthy magistrate, a great man, a great man doing great things. Um, but they find out in a town nearby, they find a guy they said is Jean Valjean who broke his parole and he's being put on trial. And when they put him on trial, they have the witnesses that are proving who he is, Jean Valjean. And so he feels guilty because he's very well, and, but if they get this fake Jean Valjean, he's free for his life for, forever. But he goes to the trial, and at the trial, they have these witnesses, witnesses that come and say that this homeless, down-and-out man is Jean Valjean. And so they're going to take him away and convict him of breaking his parole and he'll never be heard of again. But the real Jean Valjean is there, the magistrate, they're honoring him. And he watches this and he finally goes forward and he presents the case that he is the real Jean Valjean. And he shows who he is. They don't believe it. but he's, And I'm saying, you, know, you get the witnesses that were not credible. They were saying he is the, the guilty part. This man is the guilty party. You see the same thing with the Apostle Paul, Rabbi Saul. He stands in the book of Acts um, where he is standing before Felix, Festus, and the rest of us. What is that? Uh, Felix, Festus, the rest of us? No, that's the, the movie. Okay, the television show. Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. And so there's witnesses against him. Witnesses to prosecute him. And then he, there's not too many witnesses, he himself, Rabbi Saul, is his own witness. And we, we see one of the trials here in, um, in uh, Acts chapter 24. Actually, when he was there and the Roman governors get together, they say this man might have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar because his witness was credible. The false witnesses, the Jewish community, were against him. So all I'm trying, if you're confused, good. The only thing I'm trying to show is that there's witnesses for and against. And so with Rabbi Saul, it says in Acts 24, 10, when the governor nodded for him to speak, the witnesses against him already spoke. Paul responded, uh, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense to you. He's making his defense who he is and what he is. And if it had just been up to his witness, he would have been set free. 
but he, he appealed to Caesar. Now we see the same thing. John chapter 5. We see not a trial per se, but John is writing, Yeshua who's speaking, is telling us there are certain people against him. And then we're going to see the witnesses for Yeshua. That's what we're going to get more of the witnesses for Yeshua next week. But we'll start today here. Uh, John in chapter 5, he's saying this. I believe this is what he's trying to tell us. That we should accept. We have it up there? Good. We should accept. And remember, the book of John, that's what the whole book is. Almost every week you're going to hear me say this. We should accept and believe in Yeshua. Because John, you remember, John chapter 20, he's writing these things that took place so that you might believe that Yeshua. Everything in John is that you might believe. Seven major miracles. So that you may believe, John speaking to the world, that you might believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of David, and that by believing you would have life in His name. John writes that you might believe. So almost every week we're going to see a similar uh, main idea. We should accept and believe in Yeshua because of His, or the witnesses. And we're going to see what those witnesses are. There are five. We're not going to get them today, but they're the five, the witnesses. Because of His uh, proper witness, and the testimony that actually comes from God. God's going to send forth His witnesses. So in a sense, we're going to set it up sort of like a trial. So the first thing we're going to see is that I'm going to deal with here is that we're going to have the wrong witnesses, or, or like I would like to think, is the uh, witness for the prosecution against Yeshua. And so the first thing we're going to see is the wrong testimony. The, war, the, the uh, prosecution is going first. Why Yeshua is not the Messiah. And so we're going to see this in John 5. So we see the wrong testimony, the wrong witness, which comes from man, mankind. So if we're talking to trial, they say, can the next witness come forward to, for the prosecution? So the first witness is mankind. That's, that's what we're seeing in John here. The first, bring forth mankind. What does he have to say? And so fill it in here. The wrong testimony. This is mankind's uh, witness. Man's, the first thing we see about man, man's witness is his nature and his testimony. Man does not have a good uh, background. Man does not have a good uh, testimony. Mankind. And that's what we're going to see here, that Yeshua knew it. And John was saying, according to the Bible, man's testimony is marred. Man's testimony is not good. It's been marred for thousands of years. Ever since the first man, Adam, ever since, he, uh, ever since he sinned, we see that it's affected mankind. Um, Adam was the only man ever who was able not to sin. You get that? Adam was able not to sin. He didn't have to give into it. He gave into it, and he's caused all of us since him to only be able to sin. Some more or less, we can still do some good things, but we still have to sin. That's in our nature. Mankind's nature. We go naturally, and that's what I'm going to show you here in this first part. Man's nature is always to turn away. Man's nature is always to do the wrong. We do not have a good, good history going on. Um, we've been marred. Um, we, uh, we are depraved in every aspect of our being. That doesn't mean we don't do good things, but sin has affected Every part of you and me. Body, soul, spirit. We naturally go in the wrong direction. What do I mean by that? God is one direction. We naturally go away from God. We that's our natural tendency. So here we see um, every part. After Adam sinned, you could trace it in the Bible, you see the results of that. 
You see, Cain kills his brother. Then after that, we see Noah. Every thought of mankind was only to do sin and evil. We see Israel's history. Israel always going in the direction. You know, I'm purposely painting this black as possible. Uh, as dark as possible. Because mankind sins. Mankind goes away from God. And usually their testimony or their witness is not reliable, is not credible. Mankind has gone away. Look with me now in John chapter 5, verse 38. We read, um, John writes, speaking of Yeshua, um, he says, you do not have his word abiding in you. Just stop for a minute. I divide the world to two bubbles. The left bubble, all the world, all the people who've ever lived. Everyone's in. You and I were once in that bubble. Then there's the right bubble. This is the body of Messiah. All those who were in that bubble once, now they've accepted Messiah. They've put their trust in Him. And they're part of the new body of Messiah. We have God's Word abiding in us. We have God's Spirit abiding in us. We, according to Corinthians, can know the thoughts in the mind of God. We're not better. God has done something. These people over here do not have God's Word abiding in them. A number of years ago, I remember speaking sort of like this, and one person who was visiting, did not believe in Yeshua, was very, very upset with me how I painted the picture of a non-believer so dark. Because the non-believer does not know God, folks. Does not know God. Now, that means they could be good people, good Jewish people, good Catholic people, good all kinds of things, good people, but they do not know God. They don't have a vision for God. They don't communicate with God. They're far, far away. There's a block because of sin. Mankind, we have God's Word abiding in us. We know God. We communicate with God. We have a vision. We understand. Now, it doesn't mean we can't go astray and do wrong, but we have a relationship with God that the rest of the world does not. Today, people naturally do not believe in God, do not believe in God's message, do not believe in God's messenger. Mankind rejects. And so we see in John here, the witness uh, in John 5, the witness is against Yeshua because mankind naturally goes against him. Um, in, the, in the message that Stephen gives in Acts chapter 7, and it's a, you could study it, there's a theme going through Acts chapter 7. And he's saying to the Jewish people who are arresting him and they're going to stone him and kill Stephen, they say, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist God. Because that you resist God, His message, and His messenger. You always are resisting Him. And that's the whole theme of that. And really, it's the theme of mankind. We always resist God. We naturally go away. Unless God does a miracle. Unless you sit back there, and I was thinking about this. So what made me turn to the Lord? If I'm so dark, and I can't do good, and I don't know good uh, God, and I don't communicate with God, and I have no vision for God, what makes me different than anyone else? I don't know. God's Spirit picked me up, and He took care of me. That's what He did. Unless God does something, there's no hope. So that's why you need to pray for the lost, that God would touch their heart and soul. Only God can do that. Uh, Stephen's message, he said to the Jewish community when they're arresting him, they say, first, God raised up Joseph. God's message. God's messenger. You resisted him, and you turned on him. Then after Joseph, um, there was Moses. You resisted God. You resisted God's message. You resisted God's... You're naturally going in the wrong direction. That mankind's testimony, mankind, you and the world's witness, is not very reliable. And so we read here in John 5.38, it says, uh, you do not have his word abiding in you. 
the rest of the world who do not believe in you, do not have God's word abiding in him. You do not believe in him whom he sent. That's how you have God's word. God sent Yeshua. You put your trust in him. Or we, that's what we do. God, I believe I've sinned against you. I believe you sent the Messiah, Yeshua, to die for me. I now want to receive you and put my trust in you. At that moment, God's spirit comes in to live in you. You move residences from the left bubble to the right bubble. You become a believer. And now you can know God. Listen carefully. They can't know God. They can't have a relationship with God. It's just what they've drummed up in their mind. Only by faith in Yeshua can you have a relationship with God. That, so mankind has turned away. Follow along in John chapter 1. Verse 9. John, he, he overlaps much, much, much of his message. John chapter 1, 9. There was the true light, Yeshua, which coming into the world enlightens every man. I, I love that verse. You know, listen. This part of this world, left bubble, if you're not a believer in Yeshua, I love you. You're blind. You can't see God. You can't know God. Yeshua came in the world to open our eyes. Only in Him can you be, have your eyes opened and understanding about God. The rest of the world says, you are brainwashed. Thank God I'm brainwashed. By God. January 15, 1972, that strange day, God opened my eyes. And I moved into the body of believers. And I went home that night as a believer. And I said, I'm one of them now. I knew nothing could change it. I knew I had a relationship with God. And I knew everyone was going to criticize me. My family, friends, everyone was going to criticize saying I'm brainwashed. And then I'm backward. And you're just following along with these people. But now it says, Yeshua coming into the world, he enlightens every man. Yeshua is the one. It's the picture of the Hanukkah menorah. Hanukkah. You light the top light, which is the servant. That light is the only one who gets He lights all the other lights on the menorah. Because Yeshua is the light of the world, and they can only be lit by Yeshua. And he says, he was in the world, um, uh, and he enlightens every man. He was in the world, the Messiah, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Messiah can't, the world can't know God. That's why I remember one of my teachers saying, you work, you share your faith, you talk to people like it all depends on you. You pray, you, you, re, uh, you, you share your good, the message of Yeshua. You, you work for the, to reach the lost. You do everything you can. But you pray like it all depends on God. You work like it all depends on you, but you pray like it all depends on God. You share your faith. I've shared many times with people, with the non-believers, and I felt good. I felt like, oh, Lord, you're doing good. You're giving me the right thoughts, the right message, the right verses. Oh, they give an objection. Boom, I'm getting back. I get them. They, they don't stand a chance. And I felt powerful. I felt the power of the Holy Spirit. And I said, this person, ah, I got him good. And I said, so, would you like to receive Yeshua now as your Messiah? No. no. Then there's the other people I'm sharing with. I said, Larry, you're doing a bad job. You're not remembering the verses. You're not... Co coherent, you're not fluid, you're not, you're not making any sense, and everything is bad, you're not sharing the good news, good, and then all of a sudden they look at me and go, can I pray to receive the Lord? Because it all depends on God. God is the one who does it. Work like it all depends on you, depend like, pray like it all depends on God. Uh, verse 11, Yeshua, he came to his own. Here's a discussion whether it means the Jewish people or mankind. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Jewish people did not receive him. The world did not receive him because man naturally rejects. 
God, His message, His messenger. We thought we talk about Isaiah. Isaiah, I mean, the book is great. It's a masterpiece. The whole Bible is a masterpiece. But Isaiah, he's the prince of all of them, it seems like. You think Isaiah, you know, when he was around, oh, Isaiah, oh, mighty Isaiah, you're wonderful. They, they all bowed down to, to Isaiah. Um, Isaiah, they put in a hollow tree and they sawed him in half. It wasn't popular to be a prophet. You usually die. Isaiah was Manasseh the king and probably the people behind him uh, stood to kill him. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. They did everything to Jeremiah. Just read that book and just see what he suffered. Because mankind is not reliable. Mankind turns away from God. Turns away from God's message. Turns away from God's messenger. Ezekiel, what he went through. Forget, laying on his side for 300 and something. I don't know. And then the other side, what the prophets go through is incredible. Because they don't naturally accept God. Chapter uh, John 2. But Yeshua, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Yeshua, his witness, his testimony, he didn't depend on mankind. He knew what was in man. He knew that man's nature was marred. He knew that man's nature was naturally... He didn't trust in man because he knew what was in him. And it says, he knew what was in man. But it says... Uh, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew who he was. So John is just telling us that Yeshua didn't need man to testify who he is. Yeshua knew who he was, and he didn't need mankind's testimony. Uh, one of my favorite verses that I quote quite a lot about mankind is found in Ezek uh, Ecclesiastes. Follow along, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. Behold, I have found only this, that God has made man upright. God made us right. God made us right with Adam. God gives us the direction. God gives us what is good and right and holy and pure. God made man upright. But we, we have sought out many devices. All this is saying is, God made us right. But we question and turn away from God. That's what mankind does. We naturally go away from God. Um, Romans chapter 1 puts it this way. Similar. Uh, this is the witness of mankind. We don't trust mankind. We pray for them. We love them. We share the message. Don't trust mankind's message because, again, mankind without God is dark. Mankind doesn't know God. And you have to realize that when you're sharing, people just don't understand. And so, uh, look what the Rabbi Saul writes in Romans 1. For since the creation of the world, God created the world. I love the way he phrases here. His invisible attributes. You don't see God. I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing God, but if you want to see God and learn about God and want to know what God is like, you know what you do. You study about Yeshua because he's the image, exact representation of God. If you want to know about God, you read more about Yeshua. But So God is invisible. You can't see the Father. You can't. We saw the Son, but you can't see the Father. But he is invisible. His power, can't see his power. His presence, can't see him. Uh, his knowledge, just can't understand that. It's not part of us. He is invisible at his mercy, his compassion, his love, his invisible attribute. You can't see God's attributes. But, Rabbi Saul says, his eternal power, part of his attributes, his divine nature have been clearly seen. I love the way he says that. You can't see it, but it's clearly seen. The way he writes it. What's clearly seen? They're being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Rabbi Saul is saying, if you look at creation, if you look at space, 
If you look at the universe, and then there's a book and I, uh, that I recommend also, uh, is it Fearfully and Wonderfully Made? A doctor writes this book on the human body. And he takes different parts of the body, each chapter. The eye, the circulatory system, the heart. And he deals with each one. And when you see space, and you see mankind, and you see our bodies, you have to come to the conclusion, you have to come to the conclusion that there's a God who did all this. It just couldn't happen otherwise. And so that's what Rabbi Saul is saying. God's invisible. You could see who he is through what has been made. So that the world is without excuse. What he's saying is the world should naturally say, God, I can't see you, but I see you. I need to turn to you. And that's what he's saying here. Verse 21, Romans 1. For even though the world knew God, they did not remember because God made us upright. You know, people talk about the evolution or de-evolution of uh, religion and faith in God. People say, well, you know, man was made primitive and we developed into the knowledge of God. But really, that's the opposite of what took place in the world. We've devolved away from God revealed himself. God made himself known. Mankind has gone constantly away from God. And it says here in verse 21, even though they knew God, created us with the knowledge of him, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, mankind became fools. They turned away from God. Verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of God of the incorruptible God, for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You started off right, and we turned away. They've turned away from God. John 5 is telling us, mankind is not, mankind is not a reliable source. And Yeshua knew that. And, and it says, chapter 5, 41, Yeshua says, I don't receive glory. Another translation another for glory might be praise. Another word would be actually better. And it says, I don't receive praise from men. Yeshua was not looking for men to prove who he was. He had other witnesses. He had other testimonies, which we're going to go, which is really exciting, the way God provides the witnesses that we'll get to more next week. I, uh, I do not receive glory from men or praise from men. It was really you're saying, I'd add, because they're wrong. But I know you, John and Yeshua says, I know you, that you have... Uh, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. You've turned away from God. Now, people think that I have a, a bad, twisted, uh, wrong view of mankind, especially the far left. The far left. They believe in the goodness, the kindness of mankind. The Bible does not tell us that. The Bible tells us we naturally are not good and kind. We naturally go astray. And that's what I've been saying. The testimony of the witness of man is not reliable since Adam. And it says in Jeremiah 17, 9. 17, 9. The heart of mankind is deceitful above all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Man naturally goes away unless God intervenes. So if you're a believer today and you have a relationship with God and you know God and you read His Word and you pray and you have an understanding of who God is, doesn't mean we have all knowledge and all wisdom. And yet, be thankful. Because it's not possible to get to this point unless God did a miracle. And that's what I, I realized in my own life. I was, I was in Philadelphia minding my own business or everybody else's business. And I was doing my own thing. I wasn't seeking God. The world doesn't seek for God. We seek for our own man's praise, our own glory. Going the wrong direction. God reached down. 
I like to describe it, a waterfall. Oh, big, big waterfall. Picture Niagara Falls. Big waterfall. All of mankind is on top there, and we're rushing down, going over the waterfall. All of mankind. We're all going over the... And we're going down. And God looks down, and He sees me. And He picks me up, or He sees you. He picks you up, and puts you up on the shore, or the top. What do you say, everyone? Thank you. Then you start praying, Lord, can you reach so-and-so, so-and-so? Because we naturally go astray. We don't normally go in God's direction. And so, um, who can understand it? My life, your life, you are not seeking God. Even though you think you are seeking God. God was seeking you. When you say, well, no, Larry, you're wrong. I went to a Bible study. I was listening to believers. I was doing this. That was God's mercy, folks. That was God reaching for you. You were desperately sick. You're desperate without knowing God. But he saw. And he said, why me? I don't know. Well, it says because of God's grace and mercy. He reached down to us. The picture of mankind, the best picture of mankind, and you should write this down because at least, you know, at least you'll know where it comes from. It was written by a Jewish, uh, a Jewish rabbi, but there's the only kind of rabbis, okay? And in uh, the book of Romans, chapter 3, he, this great rabbi describes the heart and nature of man and the works of man. And it says, Romans 3, Rabbi Saul says, What then? Are we better than they? In the context, he's saying, Are we Jewish people who have God's revelation? Are we better than the Gentiles? And he answers, Not at all. God forbid. For we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all sinful, are all under sin. Then he gives a little bit of the nature of mankind. He says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. The word righteous there means being in the body of Messiah. Being given God's righteousness. Being saved. Not one. All of us, all mankind for all ages are there. And there's only, no one is righteous on his own. And then he gives us uh, the nature of man. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Nobody seeks for God. He seeks for you. All will be turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's not uh, there's none who does good. There's not even one. So he tells us the nature of man. We are dark. We're depraved. We're separated from God. Then he says, let me show you what we do. How you act. You say, look, I'm not as depraved as Larry is. He's, he was really bad. But, you know, so then the rabbi explains what you do. This is what you're like. Not as bad as Larry, but this is what you're like. And he goes on. Their throat, what comes out of our mouths, is an open grave. Nice, that's the description. Your throat's an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. He's given a description of all of us. This is mankind. This is the testimony of mankind. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The paths of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, Always saying, John is telling us, Yeshua is telling us, mankind is not a good, reliable witness of who Yeshua is. Well, where do I get that? That you'll get from God. But who does mankind naturally choose? You know, in sharing with Jewish people, a lot of times they've said to me, Jewish people, if Yeshua was the Messiah, picture if he's the Messiah and he came to set man free and to do good and wonderful things, if he's the Messiah, wouldn't our Jewish people believe in him? And our answer is, no, because we choose the wrong. Mankind goes in the wrong direction. We choose the wrong one. If Yeshua was the Messiah, he should be rejected. If they accepted him, he wouldn't be the Messiah. 
Because mankind chooses wrong. So who does mankind choose? That's what we're going to hear. Mankind chooses. Follow along with me. Man's choice and his witness. John 5.43 I have come I have come in my Father's name. It's a great phrase when you look at it. Um, Yeshua didn't come for his own purposes. Yeshua didn't come with his own agenda. Yeshua was sent from the Father and the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to come to the earth to do the Father's will. That's all he chooses to do. In a sense, that's our, our message for all of us. You and I are here to do God's will in this lifetime. Um, my definition of success, everyone, for all of us. Your purpose on earth is to find out what the will of God for you is and do it. That's successful. Finding out God's will for you. And so, uh, he says, I come here to do God's will. Mankind's nature is to do their will, to turn away from God. Yeshua came, I came to do the Father's will. He says, you do not receive me. Everyone, why? Why doesn't the world receive Yeshua? Everyone, tell me, anyone. Because we go the wrong direction. We choose the wrong one. We choose the wrong people. We go naturally away from God. You choose the wrong, unless God chooses you. God chooses you, then we, we, we believe in Him. He says, we naturally, uh, if, if another comes in his own name, you'll receive the wrong one. Mankind is unreliable. They choose the wrong one. It says, how can you believe, Yeshua says, when you receive glory or praise from one another? You're seeking man's praise. You're seeking man's glory, not God's. And you don't seek the glory that is from the one and only God. You're seeking the wrong. Man naturally chooses the wrong. Throughout history, did you know there's many false messiahs that people buy into? Mankind naturally goes in the wrong direction. We see even more clear today, which you're going to see more and more with my updates on insanity. But, look at me in the book of Acts chapter 5. We see, for some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Mankind always, not always tends to choose the wrong one. Gamaliel said again, Acts 5.37, After Thutis came another one, Judas in Galilee, of Galilee. He rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. Another movement. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. After them was the Jewish man by the name of Bar Kokhba. In about 135 AD, another man rose up, and Rabbi Akiba and the Jewish community and all the people followed Rabbi, uh, followed Bar Kokhba because mankind naturally chooses the wrong. That's why I tell people it's so important for you to wake up every morning and pray, Lord, I'm going to choose the wrong today. I'm going to do wrong. I need your help. Direct me today. Whatever I do, whatever job God has given you to do, Lord, I need your direction. I need for you to hold my hand. Depends on Him. I need to read the Word of God to help clear my mind. It's, an, it's so important that you constantly refresh yourself with the Word of God by talking to Him and reading the Word. And so that we naturally choose the wrong one. Throughout history, there have been false messiahs all the time. Um, Matthew chapter 27. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any prisoner whom they wanted. And uh, at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Yeshua? I think this is a, a mini picture of the whole world. 
And it says, who do you want me to be? Messiah, the Savior of the world, or a killer? Barabbas. For Pilate knew that they just for envy they handed him up. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas to put Yeshua to death. The governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Mankind is not reliable. Mankind turns away from Yeshua. Mankind today thinks you and I who believe in the Bible, who believe in Yeshua, thinks we are brainwashed. And it's going to get worse and worse. Uh, Daniel 9.27 tells us about a person the world's going to accept. For he, whoever this he is, which I'll tell you in a minute, he is going to make a firm covenant with the many for, for one week. Um, in the future, there's a tribulation period. And there's going to be a one world leader. He's going to rise up. He's what we know as the anti-Messiah, the false Messiah. And the world's going to follow him. And, he, and for this, middle, uh, this whole week of the tribulation, they're going to follow him. In the middle of the week, He's going to put a sacri- uh, an end to the sacrifices. And it says, um, he's going to make a covenant with the Jewish people for, for, for one week. Mankind chooses wrong. Revelation 13.1 And the dragon, another word for the devil, stood on the sand of the seashore and I saw a beast coming up, that's the anti-Messiah, coming out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. And his heads were blasphemous names. Revelation 13.8 And all who dwell on the earth will worship Him. It's not a pretty picture the way mankind goes. It's not a reliable picture. Do not trust in mankind. The psalmist says, don't put your trust in horses. Don't put your trust in chariots. But put your trust in the Lord. He says, "Those, uh, the whole world will worship Him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life, the uh, book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Unless God intervenes, we go naturally in the wrong direction. Mankind is not reliable to look to. Mankind chooses the wrong. So God says, now, that's the case for the prosecution. We go in the wrong direction. What is the case for the defense? Follow along. I think I'm going to try to get this one in here if I can. Yeah, okay. Uh, Let's call the witnesses for God. The right, I have down here, the right and proper testimony, the witness from God. Okay, we're in the court. So they say to the defense, who's your first witness? It's actually coming from God. The first witness, right there. Yohanan the Immerser is the witness of Yeshua. The first witness that God brings forth is what we call, as we know, John the Baptist. God calls forth the first witness. There are five witnesses. Five witnesses. We're going to get to maybe today one. Next week, the next four witnesses that God is going to present. As present in John, because what is John doing, everyone? He is writing so that you might believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. It's so strongly put. You know, there's only one way to have life. Only one way to have eternal life. Have a relationship with God. There's only one way to know God. To talk to God. To, uh, to read His Word. There's only one way to communicate. You must be a believer in Messiah. First witness, come forward. So, Yochanan the Immerser. John the Baptist, he comes forward. Follow along, John 5, 22. Yeshua and John say this, There's another who testifies of me. And I know that uh, the testimony which he gives about me is true. John came forth, and he was the one who was the witness of Yeshua. Um, They asked John, Why are you here? Who sent you? The Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah, book of Isaiah, chapter 40, 
John tells us who he is, but follow along in uh, Isaiah chapter 40. This is who John is. It was predicted 700 years before John came. Isaiah 40 verse 3. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. He's going to turn people back to God. Let every valley be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain. The rugged uh, terrain uh, a broad valley. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John came to prepare the world for the Messiah. He's the first witness. We have to turn to see what John said. When we get a picture in, in the book of John, John is the first one called. Follow along with me uh, in John 5, verse 33. Yeshua, John says, You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Well, who sent? Who's, who sent? When John was preparing the way for Messiah, he came to the earth, and the whole world started was curious about who Yohanan, John the Immerser, was. Because he was preaching, turning, telling the people, turn back to God. Turn back to God. You need to repent of your sins and turn back to God. And so the whole world at that time was going out to John. He was immersing them in the Jordan River. And so the Jewish leaders came, sent by the Pharisees. Who are you? What are you doing? What is your message? And John is telling them, he says, he's a voice uh, according to Isaiah. Follow along, John 1. This is his testimony. This is the testimony of John. When the Jewish people sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to may ask him, who are you? And the show, um, the chosen, brings us out well. Because the Jewish leaders send people to find out, who is this Yeshua? Who is this John, actually? And John is telling them about Yeshua. And John says this. He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Messiah. Who are you then? He said, I'm a voice. And he goes on and he quotes. Uh, we'll, we'll see here. John 1, 19, uh, 21. I'm not the Messiah. They asked him, well then, who are you? Are you Elijah? You know, why would they say Elijah? Because that's found in our scriptures in the book of Malachi. Before the Lord comes, Elijah the prophet will come. And so the Jewish people knew that. And in a sense, John was fulfilling the role of Elijah, but he says, no, I'm not Elijah. Elijah will probably come, or someone like Elijah, before the Messiah in the second coming. He said, are you Elijah? And he answered, no, not Elijah. He says, well, are you the prophet? Where does that come from? Deuteronomy 18. Moses said there's going to be a prophet like me who stands in the face of, face to face with God. There's going to be a prophet. So all the Jewish community always look forward to either Elijah coming or the prophet who would turn us all back to God. So the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're like, are you preparing us for a Messiah? Are you the Elijah? Are you the prophet? He answered. He answered, no, I'm not that. John 1, this is his testimony. And they said to him, who are you then? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23. He said, and he's quoting Isaiah 40 that I just read. He said, I'm a voice. Just a voice crying in the wilderness. God was raised up by, I'm sorry, John was raised up by God to prepare the world for the Messiah. He was a voice. He was different than mankind. He was God's representative. And he's the first testimony. And he says, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They wanted to know about John. They were curious. I don't think they weren't serious. But they asked him and said to him, Why then are you immersing? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing, uh, preparing the people 
for God's coming if you're not, if you're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. John answered them saying, I immerse you in water, because John, his witnesses, I have come to prepare you for the Messiah. That's the first witness. We're just listening to what John has said. He says, I immerse you in water, but someone stands among you. I love this phrase. You do not know one among whom you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to, unti- uh, to uh, untie. John is preparing them. The first witness, John's on the stand. I'm a voice. I'm preparing you for the Messiah. And he goes on. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was immersing. Now, I'm going to take a little quick side tack if I can. Uh, I'm thinking of doing a trip, just to let you know, for, for Shuva next year. So, yeah, if you want. It's going to be a small trip. I'm going to try to keep it to about 25, maybe 30. Anyway, but some of you who want, you've wanted for a long time. I haven't done a trip since, actually didn't do it in 2020 either, 2019. But there's one site, Fran's not particularly fond of this site. But I like to go to this site. I take you because we weren't allowed there before. It was controlled in the West Bank uh, by the Jordanians, and we weren't allowed there. I like to go to this one site. The reason I'm saying that because in this verse here it says these things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was immersing. We go to that site. I really enjoy seeing that site. Now it's a dirty site, not clean. The water is it mud, Fran, or is it silt and mud? It's not great. No, it's not good at all. I love going to this site. It's a little bigger than Jordan there. It's dirty. Um, seating's okay. It's not, and, and, and so what do you see in this? I love this site because this site is where Joshua, right around here, within a couple miles, crossed the Jordan with the Jewish people. And so we read the part in Joshua uh, chapter, I think, 2 and 3, where Joshua uh, stopped up the Jordan River and he crossed. I love reading these portions. Joshua stopped up the Jordan River there, God did, and they passed through it, similar to Moses. Great, great sight to see what Joshua did. Then, in the same site, the same area, I like to go there, I want you to think back about 2,700 years ago, Elijah the prophet, he came to this site with Elisha, his, uh, his top man, his servant. And they went there. And uh, the Bible tells us that uh, Elijah first stopped at Jericho, first Bethel, then Jericho, then it said, and then he went to the, this site on the Jordan River. And this is the site where, El, El, I never know how to say Elisha or Elisha, anyway, um, where he said to Elijah, I want a double portion of what you have. And Elisha said to him, that's a hard thing. I don't know if God's going to grant you that, but if you see me go, you got it. So we go up to the, where do they come? To the Jordan, right where we are. This is a significant site. And they come there, and it tells us that Elijah threw down his mantle, Jordan parted. Listen, Moses didn't part the Jordan, he parted the Red Sea, but Joshua parted the Jordan here. Elijah parted the Jordan. This is a significant place. And Elijah goes up, and Elisha sees him go up. And God, it's interesting because if you trace, just by chance, if you trace Elijah's miracles, Elisha, Elisha get twice as many miracles as Elijah did. He got a double portion. But this is the site. This is where Elijah went up to heaven. It's nice to stand in that area. Joshua came here with the Jewish people. Elijah and Elijah came here right to the spot. This is where Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist, he came 
to immerse the people. So it's a significant site. When we're reading John chapter, where is it? Where are we? John chapter 1 here? Yeah. John, it says, they came where John was immersing. This is the site. What's that have to do with his witness? Nothing. But I just wanted to tell you that. Then that just in case you were thinking that. Because later you're going to go home and say, Larry, why did you say that? I'm telling you. Because I thought it was nice. Okay. And if you go with me, we're going to go to that site. That's right. Okay. And then you're going to say, but the water's dirty. And forget it. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Yeshua coming to him. This is John's testimony. And John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a loaded statement. John came, and he's giving us his testimony. John chapter 5 is telling us what John said. John chapter 1 is telling us. He was there, immersing people, and he looked at Yeshua when Yeshua came to him. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, as John said that to the Jewish people, they probably were familiar with Isaiah chapter 53. Where it says he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we did not esteem him. All our sorrows and pains were placed on him, and by his scourging, by his stripes, by his death, we are healed. John, with all the people, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, and all the people, points to Yeshua. And he says, Isaiah 53, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John was sent by God. Here's the first witness. Isaiah 53. John was saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Jewish people would understand it. John was referring to Isaiah 53. John was referring to the Passover. The Lamb of God. Take the Lamb. Shed the blood. Take the hyssop. Dip it in the blood. Put it on the doorpost. Put it in the upper portion. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We just got through with Passover. John was referring to Isaiah 53. John pointed them all back. God, John, Yochanan, the immersers, witness is true. It's not mankind's witness. Mankind takes us away from God. John is pointing us to God. That's what the writer of John, not John of Heaven, is telling us. And it says, um, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53. It's referring to the Passover. He, John is saying to all the people at that time, this is the one who all the sacrifices point to. All the sacrifices in Leviticus. Leviticus is a tough book to get through. At least for me. You, you're different. You're much smarter, so you understand Leviticus. But Leviticus is not an easy book to get through. When I get to Leviticus, I, I know the first seven chapters. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Uh, whole burnt sacrifice. Guilt offering. Trans trespass. Thanksgiving. Votive. I don't know what votive is. Anyway, all kinds of sacrifices. And John is saying, when he says the Lamb of God, he's saying Isaiah 53. He's saying Passover. He's saying all the book of Leviticus, all the sacrifices point to Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't trust in man's testimony. Trust first God sent Yochanan the Immerser. John 1, chapter 1, verse 19, uh, verse 30. He goes on. This is he. John, speaking of Yeshua, pointing to Yeshua, of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I did, for he existed before me. Great phrase. Yeshua always existed. Yeshua was not just born in Bethlehem. People get it confused. They say, well, Yeshua first came to Bethlehem. No, he didn't. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, behold, not behold, but you, thank you, get up here and you try to remember. Anyway, um, Bethlehem, uh, no, 5-2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you're too little to be among the mighty clans of Judah. 
Yet from you, Bethlehem, small, little, insignificant village, yet from you will come forth for me, for God, the one who is to be ruler in Israel. Then it tells us, his goings forth. The verse Micah 5.2 is telling us, he's born in Bethlehem, but his going forth, his origin, where does he really come from? And then he says, his going forth are from the days of old, from the days of eternity. Yeshua always existed. Get that in our minds. He was born in Bethlehem as a man. He always existed. God the Father did not create Yeshua. Yeshua always existed. And John is saying that he is much more important. He has a higher rank because he always existed. Isaiah chapter 9, 6 tells us about Yeshua. 700 years before he came. Uh, John 9, 6 says, a son, a child's going to be born. A son is going to be given. This one, the government of Israel is going to be on his shoulders. And his name is going to be called. Anyone? Wonderful counselor. You should know it by Hebrew. It's just so good. Pele awaits. Wonderful counselor. Then it says this child that will be born is going to be called the mighty God. El Gabor. And then the phrase says, Aviad, the father of eternity. Yeshua has a higher rank than John because he always existed. He had no beginning and no end. Yeshua has always existed. He'd also be called the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Um, and with Micah 5, 2, it says, He had no beginning, no end. This is John's testimony of Yeshua. And then we will... Uh, I'll read the verse. Yeah, the next verse. Um, 1931. I didn't recognize him, John says. Uh, but so that he might be shown to Israel, I came immersing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to immerse in water said, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon this one is, uh, the, one, this is the one who immerses in the Holy Spirit. I may myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The witness for the prosecution is unreliable. Mankind goes astray. Mankind chooses the wrong. God says, let me give a case for Israel. Let me give a case for Israel's Messiah. Let me give a case for the, who the Messiah is. I'm going to bring forth my witnesses. First witness, according to the book of John, is Yochanan. Don't get those two Johns. You get confused in case you are. There's John, the writer of the book, and there's separate John, the immerser. God brings forth the witness for the defense. First witness is John. I came that you might have life, that, I, that you might believe in Messiah Yeshua. Next week, the case continues, the trial continues, as we see God's next four witnesses. That you might believe Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God. All those who believe in Him might have life. Father God, we thank You for the testimony here. Not of mankind, but the testimony of God. And that You sent first, our first witness, Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist. And he came to reveal Yeshua to us. He came to speak of the Lamb of God. He came to speak of the one who always existed. We see God's first witness and testimony. Lord, we ask today that your witness might speak to the hearts of man. That we might listen to the words of God through John, who said, Behold the Lamb of God, Yeshua, who takes away the sin of the world. Father God, we thank you for his testimony. We ask that anyone here it's just on the verge. They've heard the message a lot. But right now we pray, Lord, that you would 
speak to their heart and that they might quietly in their heart say, I believe I've sinned. I believe Yeshua died for me. I now want to put my trust in Him. We thank you for these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. You're listening to Solace Radio on the Meander Radio Network. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio streaming on Podbean. If you have any comments, let us know. Your sharing, liking, and subscribing helps Solace Radio reach those in need. If you would like to support us, visit www.solaceradio.org.